And we ask, O Lord, as we gather, that You would use Your Word to accomplish Your work in our lives. We pray that it would sharpen us. We pray that it would convict us. We pray that it would comfort us. That it would instruct us. We pray that it would give us wisdom. And we pray, O Lord, that as it does these things, that Christ would be lifted up, exalted, magnified, glorified in our presence. May our hearts be drawn more fully to Him. And we pray this for our children as well, Lord, both for those inside the womb and for those outside the womb. We pray for their salvation. Please, God, please, we pray for the sake of Christ, for the glory of Christ, that You would save our children. We pray that You would grant them repentance and salvation in due time. We pray that the seeds of the gospel that fall on their hearts today would be safe, would be falling on good soil that you will bring to harvest in your time. And we pray, O Lord, that you would use your word today to give us more faith, to grow us in Christ's likeness, teach us to trust him more, teach us, O Lord, to see our need for him more and more, that he may be glorified in our lives through our faith, and our obedience unto Him. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, today, I want to start out by reminding you guys why we do expository preaching here. Expository preaching is what I do. It's, it's verse by verse, chapter by chapter, just straight through a book. And I was uh, writing to a friend this week and talking about some of the benefits, uh, the, pr- the pros of uh, preaching this way. And one of those is that it prevents the preacher from avoiding texts that are uncomfortable or that might make people mad. Uh, I don't have a choice if I'm preaching verse by verse because it's going to be completely obvious to everybody if I say, well, I know we covered this passage last week and I know that there's another passage here, but we're going to skip this passage and just go to the next comfortable passage. Uh, That's not the way it works. All Scripture is given for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, including the tough passages. And today, in John chapter 12, verses 35 to 43, we come to what is probably the single toughest passage, the most controversial passage in John. So prepare uh, yourselves. Um, Turn to John chapter 12. Um, Brace yourselves because there is some tough material in this passage. One of the most important things that we can know as Christians is that God never fails. God never fails. He he never has, and He never will. That's That's a concept that is completely foreign to His nature. He hasn't failed. He cannot fail. Now, when we say that God is absolutely sovereign, That's a significant part of what we mean when we say that. But what I want to ask you guys as we start is what kinds of thoughts enter your minds when you think about God being sovereign? Now, I'll confess that once upon a time, I found the doctrine of God's sovereignty a little bit confusing. We just don't use that kind of language, uh, you know, very often. You know, I, I don't talk about people being sovereign. I talk, you talk about nations being sovereign, which means they're independent. And that's a, that's a clue. That's a good 
portion of what it means to be sovereign. But as I started to gain clarity on what exactly pastors and theologians meant when they talked about God being sovereign, I went from being confused to actually being a little bit troubled, if I'm being honest, because I started to understand that it meant that God is in control of creation. And I had to ask the question, just like everybody else has to ask the question when they're talking about God's sovereignty, how much? How much control does God have over creation? After all, don't we have free will? And of course, the answer to that is yes, we do. And no, we don't. In the ultimate sense, only God has absolute free will. Somebody must. And as I grew in my understanding of God's sovereignty, I came to see and I came to understand that if our free will has the ability to to veto or to override God's sovereignty, then God isn't sovereign. We are. Because somebody's will must triumph when two or more wills are in opposition, logically speaking. And the will that prevails is God's. Because God never fails. Scripture attests to this reality over and over again. Psalm 115 verse 3 says this. It says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. In Jeremiah 32.17 we read, Ah, Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and Your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for You. Proverbs 16.19 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Nebuchadnezzar writes in Daniel chapter 4, verse 36, probably the most succinct verse when it comes to talking about God's sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar writes this, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? And friends, this isn't even the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Let me give you one more. Just one more. Romans chapter 9. Verses 16 to 18, where it says this So then, it does not depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. It's a tough verse. That's a threat to man's sovereignty, isn't it? It absolutely is. But Scripture is clear on this. God never, ever fails. But but now let's take that one step further. If God never fails, and He doesn't, and if Jesus is God incarnate, and He is, then is it ever possible for Jesus to fail? And the answer is absolutely not. It's not possible for Jesus to fail. But if you were to look at what the Apostle John has told us in our study of John, you might be tempted to question that conclusion just a little bit. You might be tempted to think that, well, maybe Jesus kind of did fail. After all, if the goal of Him coming to earth, of Him descending, condescending from heaven, if the goal was to persuade as many people to follow Him 
on their own free will as he possibly could. If the goal was to convince as many people as possible to believe, well, at 33 years of age, which is approximately how old he is, uh, we would assume, um, how's he done so far? Well, if we're measuring it by the number of followers he has, how many followers does he have? Uh, he's got 12. But, but actually, it's only 11 because Judas is one of those and he doesn't actually believe in Jesus. So if we're looking at the way things appear on the surface, it sure looks like Jesus could have done better, doesn't it? I mean, after all, we've seen people amass a, a greater following than that in less than three years. We, we've probably seen people gain a greater following than that in, uh, in less than three days. But Jesus is fully God. And God cannot fail. And thus, we can be absolutely sure that Jesus has not, in any sense, to any degree, Jesus has not failed. And so, as we come to what is really the final interaction between Jesus and the Jews in our text today, we must understand that the fact that the Jews have rejected Jesus as their Messiah does not indicate in the least bit or to the least degree that Jesus has failed. Not in any way, shape, or form. Now, I'd have to imagine, if you, if you put yourself in the shoes of his followers, we have to imagine that the rejection that Jesus faced by the Jews, while it doesn't cause us a whole lot of panic or distress, it caused them some. Because these are people who thought that the Messiah was supposed to save all of Israel, the nation of Israel, that is. And so imagine the anxiety they must have been feeling as they watched Jesus be rejected by the Jews over and over and over again, and then handed over by the Jews to the Roman authorities who crucified Him. We get a sense of the sorrow that ethnic Jews had for their people in what Paul writes in uh, his letter to the Romans. In chapter 9 of Romans, he speaks, Paul speaks of having great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart in verse 2. He then spends chapters 9 to 11 discussing why Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah did not even begin to put a dent in God's plans. How God's plans could never be thwarted by man's sin. And how God has actually used the rejection that Jesus faced by the Jews to accomplish His eternal plans. In chapter 9 of Romans, Paul has a huge emphasis. The whole chapter is emphasizing God's sovereignty in salvation. And then in chapter 10, he emphasizes man's responsibility to believe. And for the church to go forth and proclaim the good news of the gospel message among the nations. And then in chapter 11, Paul says this. In verses 1 and 2, he says, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. And then if you go down to verse 5, he continues. He says, There has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. He then says in verses 7 and 8, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. 
But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. God never fails. He's sovereign over salvation, but man does still have a responsibility to believe. Now you might be wondering how those two things can work together. You might even be wondering how those two things are just or how that's fair. We'll be dealing with objections like that today in our study. We'll be looking at John chapter 12, verses 35 to 43. And the point of this passage is that faith opens the heart, but unbelief hardens the heart. Therefore, you must believe in Jesus today. Now, while you can, because it won't be easier tomorrow to believe, and it won't be easier next year, and it won't be easier at some point down the road, even on your deathbed. It won't be easier. Now we should remember that Jesus has announced that His hour has come. This is a huge theme in John's book. uh, The coming of Jesus' hour. And it's here. As the Greeks have come looking for Him. In fact, He declared that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And He then went on to clarify that He was talking about His death that He would die on a cross and that the Father would be glorified there. And the people were stumped because they thought that the Messiah was coming to establish an eternal earthly kingdom and that He was going to reign over it forever. And so verse 34 ended up with them asking Jesus, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So we'll continue our study of John's Gospel today by looking at what Jesus says in response to them. So starting in John chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, Jesus says this, we read this, So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Now let's understand this much for starters. These people who are asking Jesus these questions are not seeking clarification. They're not just trying to to understand what Jesus is saying. They were not confused. Their questions were intended to convey their rejection of Him rather than conveying their confusion about what He had said. These people were not seeking truth. So what were they seeking? They were actually seeking a way around Jesus. But if they'd been confused and seeking truth from Jesus, we see Jesus clarifying for people over and over throughout all four Gospels. He certainly would have given it to them. But instead, He gives them what's really a parting word of advice, a warning reminding them of the urgency to respond to the light that has been given to them by believing in Him. He's warning them that the consequences of their persistent rejection of Him are about to overtake them. That their fate would be sealed and that they would be in darkness. The darkness which they are so eager to uh, to flee to. The time to repent and to believe 
was the present moment for these people. It was urgent that they believed in order that they would escape the darkness. And once again, we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man lined up right next to each other in the text. If you were to just isolate this text and just take what we've read right here, you'd think that God is not sovereign, that man is sovereign, that man has responsibility, and God's just kind of waiting to see who decides what. But Jesus said just a few verses ago, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Of course, he was speaking of all types of men, all kinds of men, men from all walks of life, people from all walks of life, men, women, rich, poor, young, old, Jews, Gentiles. This was a clear reference to God's sovereignty in salvation, and it was an assurance that his plans would be fulfilled. He didn't say, I will try to draw people to myself. He said, I will. It was certain. There's not a question about it. It was an assurance that through the cross, God's plan of redeeming saints from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, redeeming sinners from every nation on earth, would surely be accomplished and in time, throughout history moving forward, fulfilled. But now, here in verses 35 and 36, the emphasis is on man's responsibility to believe. God's sovereignty and salvation does not nullify man's responsibility to believe. So he says, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Now you'll remember back in chapter 8, verse 12, one of the famous I am statements. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so he's once again referring to himself as the light. He's, he's using that same imagery to refer to himself. And as he's rejected, John tells us, he departs and hides himself from them. He departs and hides himself from them. John says, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. In verse 36. So really what this means is this is the last thing that Jesus says to these people. You might say they're his, his final words, his parting words. I mean, a, a great man's final words, those are always important to believe. But there's nothing more important than these final words because it's a final gospel invitation. Light has been a major theme throughout John's gospel from, from the very beginning. The Jews would have clearly understood that light represented imagery of God. It's a symbol for God. And so once again, they would understand that Jesus is claiming to be God because light symbolized God throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it was imagery in the Exodus. The, the Israelites are led away from, uh, from Egypt by a pillar of fire. But the pillar of fire was, was God. It was, it was an image of, of God. Uh, the blessing that Aaron was to speak over the people included the prayer, the Lord make His face shine upon you. What shines? Light does. Light, light shines. David writes in Psalm 4, Lift the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. And again in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Jews would have understood that claiming to be light is claiming to be God. As Richard Phillips notes, the significance of Jesus' final words here, these words of warning, is found in understanding that, quote, it's by following Jesus' light, by following Christ's light, that those in darkness are led to God. 
end quote. Apart from Him, apart from Christ, there is no light. There is only darkness. There is no way to God apart from Jesus. And to reject Him is to reject the light and to be immersed into a deeper and deeper darkness. As the Jews reject Him here one final time, Jesus' response is not to continue to plead with them to believe. He, he, he doesn't just stand there and, and knock at the doors of their hearts hoping that somebody will open their heart to Him. No, He hands them over to the darkness that they've chosen for themselves. The darkness that they loved so much. He doesn't just withdraw from them. It says that He hides Himself from them. This is an image, friends, of God's judgment. Of God's just judgment. For the Christian, the idea of Jesus hiding Himself from us, there's not a more frightening image than that. But praise the Lord, He's promised that He will never do that. And instead, He's promised that He is with us until the end. He's promised that nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we need to understand that Jesus leaving and intentionally hiding from these people is a picture of God's just judgment against people who have rejected Him. It's a picture of Him handing them over Think of Romans 1. Handing them over to the sin that they love and that they preferred more than they loved Him. In fact, they didn't love Him at all. They hated Him. The point here that Jesus is making, the point is simply this. Faith opens the heart and unbelief will harden the heart. And thus, you must believe today, now, while you can It will not be easier tomorrow. It will not be easier at some point in the future. Because if you reject Him now, if you reject Jesus now, it's because you are turning away from Him and turning to darkness. So if you're turning away from Him, it's because you love sin. You love darkness. And man's nature is is not to grow tired of sin. It's to love sin more and more. It's to love the darkness more and more. J.C. Ryle warns us then, writing this. He says, Let us not think that these things were only spoken for the sake of the Jews. They were written for us also, upon whom the ends of the world are come. End quote. And that is to say, like the Jews who repeatedly rejected Jesus, you do not know, the unbeliever does not know, when the light will be withdrawn from them. That's why you must believe today. It's not a decision that you can put off. There's an urgency to it. In fact, I would say there is an extreme urgency to it. Access to the fountain that can wash away your sin will one day be closed off to you. The door to salvation through faith in Christ will one day be locked and those who have refused to enter, those who have refused to believe will no longer have the opportunity to enter. That time might come for you at death, but you must know that it could also come before that as a result of your insistence on hardening your heart toward God. 
John gives us his own commentary on their rejection in verse 37. He says, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. One thing is clear about these people at this point. They don't doubt that Jesus has done these signs. They don't deny that Jesus has done these miracles. They don't deny that Lazarus was raised from the dead. There's too much evidence. They can't deny it. It's in their faces. They're not doubting. John has recorded actually seven signs. That's his favorite word for for miracles. Jesus has recorded seven miracles that Jesus performed throughout his earthly ministry. First, turning the water into wine back in chapter 2. Second, healing the royal official's son in chapter 4. Third, healing the crippled man uh, that was by the pool of Bethesda. That was in chapter 5. Fourth, feeding the 5,000 families. That's what we saw at the beginning of chapter 6. Another one in chapter 6. Fifth, walking on the water. Uh, sixth, giving sight to the man who was born blind back in chapter 9. And then the seventh and final miracle was raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. But we should also remember that John does say in chapter 20, verse 30, that there were many other signs that Jesus performed which are not recorded in his testimony in this gospel. So many that to record them would require all the paper in the world. Is basically what he says. But the, the ones that John specifically recorded, the miracles that John specifically recorded were ample evidence. They were more than sufficient to convince people to believe in Jesus. And yet, for the most part, the Jews persisted in rejecting Him. Why though? Why do they continue to reject Him even though they knew that He had done these, these signs, these miracles? Why do they continue to reject Him? I mean, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. It's undeniable. Nobody's denying it at this point. How could they continue to reject Jesus as their Messiah, as God in the flesh? And that brings us back to chapter 3 where Jesus told us exactly why. When he said this to Nicodemus, he said, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's what Jesus said back in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. So these people turn away from Jesus. They turn into the darkness where they can still exalt themselves. They can still have all this pride. But only if they stay in the darkness. Because coming to the light would require that they humble themselves. And so, the darkness that they loved overwhelmed them. Overtook them. Just as they increasingly hated the light that threatened to break their darkness, they increasingly loved their sin. And the result was that their hearts were increasingly hardened toward God, toward Jesus. And this is exactly what happens to people who hear the Gospel. They're exposed to the light of God. They're exposed to the truth of the Scriptures. And yet, they will not believe. They say, maybe someday. 
Maybe tomorrow, maybe next year, maybe when I'm older and I'm ready to buckle down. But they aren't left with just a little bit of light by postponing it. Rather, they find themselves in a deeper darkness, exactly by the way what they wanted. If you've been to church and if you've heard the Gospel and yet you have delayed in believing in Jesus for any reason at all, you need to know that you will only descend into greater and greater darkness unless you respond to the Gospel, unless you respond to the light of God, unless you respond to the truth of Scriptures by believing in Jesus Christ, the One who leads us out of darkness and into the light. To turn away, you are risking your eternal destiny because it won't get easier once you descend into darkness. Friends, we do a great disservice to people when we just try to reason them into the kingdom without preaching the gospel. Jesus did these seven incredible signs and yet people persisted in unbelief even though they had believed that He had indeed done these miracles. It's completely irrational. But we're reminded that people love to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we're reminded of what Jesus said at the end of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Luke 16.31 If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Which, by the way, is exactly what would happen. In other words, if a person won't believe God's holy word, there's no evidence, there's no persuasion, there's not even the greatest of miracles that would convince him. People don't disbelieve because there's not enough evidence. They refuse to believe because they love the darkness, because they love their sin. Because they love their sin, they reject the light that God has given them. But does this mean that God has somehow failed? How does anyone ever believe if if these people who either witnessed these miracles or who knew people and talked to people who witnessed these miracles, if, if they don't believe, how can anyone ever believe? That's the kind of question that seems to be circling in John's mind. As he continues, and to answer these questions, what John does is he turns back to the prophet Isaiah. Let's look at verses 38 to 41, where John explains why this this was God's plan. He says in verse 38, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and He hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. And he adds this, verse 41, These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory, and he spoke of Him. So there are really two basic points that, I, uh, that, that John's trying to make here by quoting or, or kind of paraphrasing uh, from the book of Isaiah. First of all, he's remembering, and he, he wants us as his readers to remember, that the rejection of Jesus by the Jews fulfilled prophecy. One, t- one commentary calls this unambiguous predestinarianism. 
And the second thing John wants us to understand is that they could not believe because God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts against Jesus. That is to say that God's judgment against them because they would not believe is that He hardened their hearts so that they could not believe. But we need to understand that the unbelief of the Jews did not thwart God's purposes. Rather, what it did is it fulfilled God's purposes. It it, it achieved what God was accomplishing. The verse that John quotes in verse 38, that's from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. And the thrust of that verse is, is that in order for anyone to believe what Isaiah was preaching, the arm of the Lord must be revealed. In other words, God must work in His power to open the eyes and ears and hearts of a person in order for them to believe. Apart from God's sovereign, redeeming work, he asks, who will believe? And the answer is, nobody will. Instead, they'll refuse to believe even the most incredible miracles if God's arm is not revealed. Moses saw the same thing happen, by the way, in his day, didn't he? The Israelites had seen God work in power and and glory to set them free from the Egyptians. Can you imagine all the things that they saw God do right in front of them? They escaped from the most powerful nation on earth at the time and, and went through the wilderness and had manna provided for them. They saw all these things, countless miracles right before their very eyes. But then Moses turns to them in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 2-4 to and says this to them. He says, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh. He, you've seen it all. He, this wasn't concealed from there. It wasn't reserved for only a few people to see. He says, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. The arm of the Lord must be revealed. People are spiritually blind unless God opens their eyes. People are spiritually dead unless God gives them life. Now you might say, well, that doesn't seem very fair since God is demanding that they do something that they they can't do. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose that a, a man is completely broke, just flat broke, and he goes to a restaurant where he runs up a hefty tab. He orders the the best food that you can order, the the most expensive food that you can order. It runs up a huge tab. And so when the bill comes, he says, "Uh, sorry, but I can't afford this. I actually have no money. Is it not completely fair for the owner of the restaurant to say in return, it doesn't matter that you can't afford it. You owe us for it. Because the truth is, this is God's universe not yours. You might think that you have some great ideas about how things should work, about what's fair or what's unfair, but guess what? It's not your universe. And God is the ultimate standard of justice. We can't accuse Him of being unjust in what Moses said, or in what Paul said, or in what anybody said, in what Jesus said, or what John said. We can't accuse God of injustice. He's always just. He is the standard of justice. The truth is, it is God's universe. He sets the rules. 
And because you live in God's universe, you owe to Him what is due unto Him. Faith in His only Son. You might say, oh, but some have none to give. Well, that doesn't change the fact that He's owed, does it? What option does that leave you with? Only one. Only one. To plead for mercy and grace with God. Ah, so it is perfectly fair, isn't it? The second reference from Isaiah that John refers to here in verse 40 is a paraphrase from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah chapter 6, if you study theology, you know this chapter is huge. This chapter is so important. That's the chapter that starts off with Isaiah seeing a vision of the Lord's glory in His temple in heaven and It ends with Isaiah offering his services unto the Lord. And the Lord, because Isaiah offered his services unto the Lord, the Lord in turn commissioned Isaiah to a preaching ministry that would do what? Harden the hearts of men. It would close their ears. It would blind the eyes of the people. One commentator notes, Quote, by explaining the unbelief of the Jews toward Jesus with this passage, John is relating Jesus' unbelieving generation to the earlier generation of idolatry and unbelief to which God sent Isaiah to preach judgment. End quote. Just as God was perfectly just in hardening the hearts of Isaiah's contemporaries, once again, God is perfectly just in hardening the hearts of Jesus' contemporaries. This is a very tough subject. Very tough subject. It it challenges our very concepts of justice. I understand. But there are at least four points that we need to keep in mind here. Actually, I'm going to give you five. First of all, God's sovereignty and salvation does not nullify or negate human responsibility to believe. These two great truths have been put side by side time and time again throughout John's Gospel. God is sovereign, and yet man is responsible. Now, we might not be able to understand exactly how these two things can both be true, but there's one thing that we can be sure of. We can be sure that God does understand how these two things work together and that they are perfectly compatible. And we have a responsibility, a moral responsibility, friends, to believe what God says even when we don't completely understand and even when it challenges our preconceived notions of justice. Secondly, we should understand that God has a purpose in hardening hearts, in hardening the hearts of the Jews specifically here. And that purpose being that they would reject Jesus and crucify Him according to God's eternal plan. Let me ask you this. Was Jesus crucified because of the will of man or because of the will of God the Father? And the answer is, yep, both. Both. Peter would preach in Acts 2.23 that Jesus was, quote, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet, that's immediately followed by Peter saying this to the Jews. He says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. Very same breath. Very same sentence. Putting the sovereignty of God, the will of God, and the will of man side by side. Peter is assuring us that it was both. 
the will of God and the will of man that Jesus would be handed over and crucified. Thirdly, we can't deny that the hardening effect of unbelief is both man's choice and God's just judgment. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, if you read through the text very carefully, what you'll find is that six times Pharaoh hardened his own heart, the seventh time God hardened his heart. It was what Pharaoh wanted all along. God's judicial hardening of the hearts of these people is not a case of God being arbitrary toward people who are morally neutral or or good. No, rather, this is His just and holy judgment against guilty people who are condemned to judgment to the very judgment that they themselves have chosen. They would not want it any other way because they love sin. God doesn't owe anyone grace or mercy. As R.C. Sproul used to say, as soon as you start talking about God owing grace, you're not even talking about grace anymore because grace, by definition, is never, ever deserved. If you want to question God's justice, the question to be asking is not, well, then why doesn't He save everyone? The question to ask is, why does He save anyone? Why does He save sinners? Why does He save people who love sin? Why does He pull them out of the darkness? Why does He pull them out of the muck and the mire of this world? Because justice demands their condemnation. So if you want to talk about justice, that's the question to be asking. And the only answer we have is that we have, quote, been predestined according to His purpose who works all things, not just most things, not just things in one category or that category, who works all things after the counsel of His will. That's Ephesians 1.11. The fourth and final point that we need to remember when we're thinking about this stuff is we need to make sure we understand that God's sovereignty and salvation is actually a cause for hope. Not for anger. Not for rejection. It's a cause for hope. Why would you trust in a God who isn't absolutely sovereign over all things, including evil people and including painful trials in our lives? If He's not absolutely sovereign then He couldn't make the promise that He is causing all things in the lives of His people to work together for their good, for their growth in Christ-likeness. If God isn't sovereign over all things, He cannot say that. But He is. He's using every situation you face, indeed every second of your life, to work for your good. And why would you pray for the salvation of your children, or your family members, or your friends, if God is not absolutely sovereign. It's a reason for hope. A fifth point that we should remember as we consider this passage is that there is an urgency to believing in Jesus. People think that they can just put it off. People think that they can just postpone it and make that decision another day so that they can enjoy their sin. That's the only reason. You can say whatever you want. The reason is because they're turning to the darkness turning away from Jesus, turning away from the light. They think that they can just like enjoy their sin for a few years before they buckle down and get serious, but putting, putting off belief, 
for any amount of time requires that a person deliberately turn away from any and all light that they have been given. When God presents a person with the invitation to receive the forgiveness of sins by believing in Christ Jesus, when God offers a person eternal life through faith in His only Son, when God grants that a person hear that they might be adopted as a child of God if they will only turn from their sin and believe in His Son, the time to believe is that moment. There's an urgency to it. And to postpone believing in Him is rolling the dice with your eternal destiny. And friends, every time we hear the Gospel, even as people who have already believed, every time we hear the Gospel, our response should always be to believe. To believe. To postpone faith is to turn away from light. To reject Christ. And to harden your own heart. That's why the author of Hebrews quotes, quotes from the Old Testament and saying, if today you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Because that's the only other option to faith. is choosing to harden your heart. The good news of the Gospel is that despite man's persistent rebellion, despite man's desire to live in darkness, away from the light... God still works to, as Isaiah said, reveal His arm to those whom He chooses, who on their own would have chosen to remain lost in the darkness. John concludes this passage by reminding us of that. Let's look at verses 42 and 43. John writes, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him for fear that they might be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That's like saying, I'm, I'm willing to step out onto ice, but that ice is thin. What's amazing here is that none of these people, none of these Jews believed on behalf of the miracles, on behalf of the evidence. Instead, what we see is that Jesus just preached the gospel to them. And God uses the preaching of the gospel to open the eyes and the ears of some in this crowd. What did God use to convert them? Not evidence. Not persuasion. He used the preaching of the gospel. And yet they're immediately confronted with the fact that while salvation is the free gift of God unto undeserving sinners... Salvation also comes with the responsibility of confessing Christ and the possibility of the cost of being rejected by the world. These people knew that if they would openly confess Christ, that it would mean being thrown out of the synagogue. And to be cast out of the synagogue was, in that time, it was to be a social outcast in the Jewish community. It means being separated from your family, separated from your friends. We must count the cost. All true believers must count the cost. Jesus will not have secret disciples. Sooner or later, a true convert will make their faith in Christ known, regardless 
of social consequences. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Everyone who confesses Me before men, I will also confess him before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, which these people haven't done, whoever denies Me before men, I will also deny him before My Father who is in heaven. A.W. Pink says of these young sprouts, these young secret compromising believers, He says, Oh, the madness of their miserable choice. Of what avail would the good opinion of the Pharisees be when the hour of death overtook them? In what stead will it stand them when they appear before the judgment throne of God? What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? End quote. What will convince a person to openly confess Christ? I believe the answer is twofold. I think the first part of the answer is found in the word that we see repeated here in verses 41 and 43. That word is glory. Glory. These new converts, they are still in love with the glory of social approval. They're still in love with the glory of the world. But Isaiah, Isaiah committed himself openly to the Lord because as John told us, he saw his glory. Whose glory did Isaiah see? The King of glory. Christ. He saw Christ's glory. That's who he saw back in Isaiah chapter 6. He saw Jesus. Where we read that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. John wants us to understand that Isaiah saw Jesus. And he saw that the train of Jesus' robe filled the temple, leaving no other room for any competition or any other sovereign. He saw the glory of Christ. He saw the beauty and the majesty of Christ. And he felt the urgency to be cleansed before him. Having seen Christ in his glory, Isaiah knew the fear of the Lord, and he no longer feared man. Having a vision of God's glory, of Christ's glory, is part of the answer to how a person can break free from peer pressure and openly confess Christ. But a vision of Christ's glory will fill us with courage. But the second part is faith. Faith. Real faith. Faith unplugs the power of the fear of man and the need for man's approval. You have faith already? That's wonderful. That's, that's great. Pray for more. Can, can you ever have too much? No. Is there always room for more? There's always room for more. And God will be faithful to provide in order that we may boldly confess before even our fiercest enemies that Christ is our all in all. Have you seen what Isaiah saw? The glory of Christ? It's found throughout His Word. His Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. 
God has given us His Word to reveal the glory of Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, in order that we would have faith. In order that we would believe. And so, may the train of His robe fill the temples of our hearts. Driving out everything that would cause us to fear and thus serve the world instead of Christ. Because man's approval just comes and goes. It's very fragile, in case you haven't noticed. But God's approval doesn't come and go. God's approval is the same approval that He has of His own Son. And those who have had His perfect righteousness imputed to them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. His approval never fades. It is forever. But don't postpone believing. If you, if you feel like you can't bring yourself to believe in Christ, I only have one thing to advise you, and that is to plead with God. Ask God to help your unbelief. Ask Him for mercy. Plead with Him for grace, for light, for the person who truly desires and requests those things, God is always happy to oblige. And what you'll find if you're ready to start seeking God is that He's already sought you. So that those who come to faith in Christ are His forever. They will never be cast out or lose His approval. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the, the way that it challenges us, for the way that it corrects us, for the way that it sometimes rebukes us. But we thank You, O Lord, that You have given Your Word to us to reveal the glory of Christ and to show us the urgency of faith in Him. We pray, O Lord, Give us more faith. Give us stronger faith. Give us bolder faith in order that Christ would be exalted in our lives. Oh, Father, You know the direction this culture, this world is going. You know the darkness that this world is currently being plunged into. We pray, oh Lord, that as the world becomes more and more dark, that our light individually and congregationally would shine brighter. That the gospel would go forth in power and that Christ would be glorified through the salvation of sinners. All for His glory. Thank you for that. In His name we pray. Amen.